0: All right, so this is um, the fifth lecture I'm giving with you. And today, we're going to look at natural law. Um, So before lunch, I'm hoping to do a kind of two-part session on natural law and what we mean by that. And then after lunch, to look at um, contraception and marriage as a particular example of natural law reasoning, apart from anything else because our Catholic thinking says that actually all those truths about marriage that the church holds, she holds also just because they're reasonable and that the reasonable man can deduce them. And that's reason, what we mean by that, and a reasonable man is what we're going to look at first uh, this morning. So, um, on the sheet there, what's called Lecture 5, Natural Law. And on the first page version, I lights. Um, first page there, the kind of basic concept to distinguish is the difference between um, natural revelation and supernatural. Um, and obviously, the word supernatural is used by the secular world, but they mean something kind of spooky by it or something. Um, so we need to be clear and theological in what we're meaning by it. So to go through what I've said here on this sh- sheet. So the first point, there's a two forms of revelation. Revelation meaning God speaking to us. So the first concept, supernatural revelation, <laughs> which means God's revelation by supernatural means. And kind of the the clear visual image of that is God giving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So something truly exceptional, intervening, God supernaturally teaching us, speaking to us. Now one of the questions that is raised in the tradition is why we need supernatural revelation. Because there are all kinds of things you can know anyway. So why do we need supernatural revelation? Well, St. Thomas answers the question as I've quoted there. He says, Because without supernatural revelation, those truths about God, which human reason could have discovered, would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. Now, do you want to... and if you want kind of a a classical locus of that if you think of the Greek philosophers in Athens um, well they knew a huge amount they knew almost everything that the tradition has about the existence of God, his perfections you know, lots of things but there are only a few of them so yes, reason can know lots of things God does speak to us that way But if that's what you're relying on, you're going to end up really only a few people knowing it. And only after a long time. So it took a long time in human history before the Greek philosophers developed Athens. And even then, there's all kinds of errors mixed into their thinking. So therefore, that's why God gives us supernatural revelation, in which he tells us, in the Bible, in tradition, in Jesus... Things, many of which we would have known or could have known already just by reason. Okay, second point there. Uh, natural revelation. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, generally speaking, we mean God's revelation by natural means. For example, I've said they're revealing his existence by the beauty and order of the cosmos. So I can just look out the window on a starry night, I can see the glory of the heavens, and this is God speaking to me. Even without the Bible, um, God does speak, reveal himself through natural means. And my mind, as an intellectual being, with a gift of reason is able to see all that see the order the pattern the evidence of the creator in all of that and this is the natural way god speaks to me so as a, a, a general mm-hmm. concept the difference between supernatural revelation mount sinai and natural revelation gazing at the stars and using my I want to make that a bit more specific and think about morality. So, two points again. Firstly, supernatural revelation. Two examples I've given there. First, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So, how do I know the moral law? Well, I know it supernaturally by the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai. We could also look not just to the commandments, but thinking as we were before Christmas about virtue and the Beatitudes, that Jesus teaching the Beatitudes when he came on the Sermon on the Mount, that is supernatural revelation of how to live, of the moral law. But the key point today is the second point here, the natural revelation of the moral law. So what we mean here is, as I've said, what can be known by reason, what can be known, therefore, naturally, and this is what we call the natural law. I then quoted from Romans what is um, the classical text in this regard. When the Gentiles, who have not the law of Moses, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. So the notion the law written on the heart, even on the heart of the Gentile who doesn't know Jesus, um, doesn't know the Bible, that it's just in our nature, and therefore we're able to discover it. And uh, next given there a re, uh, kind of a working definition of what we mean by the word reason. And i said there is everything that can be known without supernatural revelation. I.e. without scripture, without tradition, and without the magisterium. And that still gives you a lot of thinking to be able to do. Um, and you think about it, your university department, that's your philosophy department. Not your theology department. And they might talk to each other, but actually they, they have different spheres. Now, a relevant thing here is experience, which is something that feeds into reason. When I'm thinking, when I'm reasoning, what do I reason about? Well, A lot of the time, most of the time, I'm reasoning about my own experience, but also the experience of other people that I see laid out before me. So I've said that experience. Reason a posteriori uses experience. Um, Reason is therefore a source of knowledge about the moral law. and I've given an example there. Experience shows that sex outside marriage weakens marriage. And reason can therefore conclude that sex outside marriage is a sin against marriage. Now that's a very rapid summary of an argument there, but you can see what I'm kind of indicating there. that Experience gives you something to reflect on, to reason about, and you can deduce various things and as I've noted there, experience obviously has to be analysed carefully. carefully. <coughs> it's a bit like using opinion polls and statistics, that you can use them to get any result you want. Um, but our Catholic belief is that human experience used truthfully will give us the truth, because reason, you know, the Protestant vision says reason is corrupted, whereas our Catholic understanding says, yes, we are deprived of original grace by the fall but that reason itself remains intact so that my intellect does get fogged by sin but that reason in itself is capable of thinking of working of coming to the truth so that's a few kind of basic points on that first sheet there are you With me so far. (laughs) And I know in your Anglican backgrounds you'll have had a huge variety of backgrounds in this regard. So the older ones of you might come from a time when there was what was called natural theology done, which was philosophy, um, and would have had a lot of this. But anyone, you know, any Anglican ordinand of recent years wouldn't have had that at all.
1: but you see this whole thing your whole manifestation of marriage yes okay from some of the apostles <coughs> the old commonwealth theologians yes you know what is marriage uh-huh. uh, what is sex outside marriage what is your definition of marriage we're gonna need marriage. that all that whole uh-huh. um argument there you know is marriage um Two people are married yeah. in church in front of a priest, but really have no intention of marriage. Is that a marriage? You know, the, the Protestant, our mm. Protestant forefathers, sort of opened up and went out on that one, doesn't it?
0: Yeah.
1: You know. Um, I know. I know the Catholic rules.
0: Um. Yeah. But part of what we're trying to grasp here is the Catholic rules aren't just rules. So, um, that there are three things that interrelate. That there's nature, there's reason, and then there's the law. And that these are, in a sense, a reflection of the same reality. So, God the Creator has made me that's my nature. I, using my reason, which you know, as an intellectual creature, I'm in this image and likeness of him who is rational. Point, yeah. I, I'm able, using my reason, to deduce what he has built into my nature. And that shows me the law of how to live. So that the rules of the Catholic Church, in terms of morality, aren't just random impositions. So when people Say, what's the effect of, well, maybe the church will change its rules on this. Um, unless you're going to change human nature, um, then you can't. Um, it's the present
1: illustration, is Yes, it? yes, but, th- oh,
0: but this is the thing we get fed all the time. Over,
1: Alice teacher. I mean, this is part of the whole yeah. background argument there, isn't
0: it? It is. We'll look at divorce next. But I mean, time. this is oh, part of the same. It is, it is, yes, yes. All yes. um. right, back to my sheet here. Um, so it said, referred to the magisterium's authority over interpreting the natural law. Now, if the natural law is a matter of reason and experience, well, what does that have to do with the Pope? That's, you know, um, anyone's got reason and experience. Well, The content of the natural law is contained within what we call the deposit of faith, and therefore the Pope has the authority, it is in his charism, to teach authentically and define various parts in the natural law. Even though the natural law in itself can be known by the philosophy department without looking to the Pope in Rome or a council of bishops or whatever. And then I've also quoted there that the natural law is illuminated and enriched by divine revelation. So that's a quote from Humanae Vitae, so since reason can give you the bare bones law or laws, but to have a a fuller sense of the complete, the fulfilled human person in Christ, you get a different sense of that when you see certain things in the light of Christ. So that marriage as a sacrament, as an image of the union between Christ and his church, there are all kinds of things that are true of marriage as a natural reality that I can know by reason, that have a whole new experience and um, depth to them in the light of Christ. Even apart from the fact that as a sacrament it gets enriched that way as well. next noted and i am saying very briefly some big points here but the natural law is our rational participation in what's called the eternal law of god so to speak crudely of god's mind and in his mind there is the law in him what we call the eternal law from all time what we grasp of that in our intellect by reason is the natural law so it's not something we create for ourselves it's something we share in what's his intellect so that means that we're not inventing the law we're deducing it yes that's a a very important distinction we don't create the law we deduce the law that god has already written into nature as the creator Yeah, but you deduce one thing and I deduce something else. Falsely. So, oh, yes. Well, I might be false. I'm oh, not. Really. So, <laughs> so, this is why everybody today, this secular world, is inventing their own religion, spirituality, yes. or whatever, and saying, Well, I believe what I want, and that's just as good as what you believe. We're going to come on to how reason can fail uh, later, but, um, but yes, that is obviously. So in a sense, lots of what we say about the natural law is kind of theoretical. It's what we're capable of doing. But when we realize that everybody is capable of knowing it, it sheds a whole different light about what the law is. Um, Also, what our nature is, that actually we are all of the same human nature that it's a different vision of humanity as opposed to this vision that, well, I kind of determine myself, what I am, even in my being. Um, Anyway, getting ahead of myself slightly. Page two. Now, I've given as a way of clarification, because examples almost always help clarify, two examples of a natural law argument. One, in a sense, an authentic argument. Another, a false argument that masquerades as an argument. Um, And the first argument is from St. Thomas himself. And it's the argument that religion is natural to man. Um, And St. Thomas argues it um, as follows. At all times and among all nations, there has always been the offering of sacrifices. Now that which is observed by all is seemingly natural. Therefore, the offering of sacrifices is of the natural law. Natural reason tells man he is subject to a higher being. And whatever this superior being may be, it is known to all under the name of God. Now just as in natural things, the lower are naturally subject to the higher, So, too, it is a dictative natural reason, in accord with man's natural inclination, that he should tender submission and honour, according to his mode, to that which is above man. Now, the mode befitting to man is that he should employ sensible signs in order to signify anything, because he derives his knowledge from sensibles. Hence, it is a dictative natural reason that man should use certain sensibles by offering them to God in sign of their subjection and honour due to him. Like those that make certain offerings to their Lord in recognition of his authority. Now this is what we mean by a sacrifice. And consequently the offering of sacrifice is of the natural law. Now, i make five points there about kind of the structure of that argument. First is to note that it refers to experience. So he's saying, at all times, in all cultures, this is what we see. So he's starting. Where is he starting? He's starting with human experience. Secondly, he then adds to that experience reasoning. So he says, the existence of a higher being implies such and such with respect to a lower being. So there's experience, there's reasoning. Thirdly, and this is a little more technical, he refers to man's natural inclination. Now, if you um, look at natural law arguments in general, the inclinations are something that are looked at and commented on a lot, because what a man is inclined to tells you something about him, and most um, basically tells you something about his nature.
1: So, his inclination is a property of humanity.
0: Of, the individual. Um, of our nature, yeah. and therefore of the individual. Um, so inclination here he's using in a technical sense. So if a man says he has a same-sex inclination, that would be a very different use of the word inclination to what St. Thomas is talking about here. Um, not everything you kind of feel moved to is an inclination at that base, fundamental, defining level the way it is of our nature and our natural inclination. But the basic thing is what you are moved to, inclined to tells you something about yourself. So if you're wanting to know what your nature is, what the nature of your activity is, looking to your inclinations is one of the ways of figuring it out.
1: So you're saying that offering and sacrifice is... Of, of inclination,
0: of inclination. I, th- I think in the structure of the argument here, he would first say, the giving honor to someone who is higher than you is just a natural inclination, that this is what we always see people do." Mm-hmm. Um, now we live in a democratic age. Where well, I, I'm, I'm just, if <laughs> if we walked in. Here,
1: we would probably,
0: the ordinaries, I would hope, would still... <laughs> yes, right. Um, something like that. We've we, we, we it in the armed
1: forces. You know, there's a, it plays on that.
0: Yeah. And so that's what St. Thomas is touching in on here. He's saying there's something that we just see in human behaviour that we can deduce something from and that the inclination to do that tells us something about our nature. So I said that the inclinations indicate what a thing is, its nature. Inclinations with that indicate the end that a thing is inclined towards. Now, fourthly, uh, I say his argument draws on the notion of what is natural to a being such as a human being. That a human's nature is two things, a lower being and a sensible being not just like an angel that has no body. And he says reason concludes that we should show honor because we are lower to the superior being. And how should we show honor? Well, according to the kind of thing that we are. I have a body, I use my body, I have sensible, so I should use sensible things in how I give honor. so throughout human history get pagans offering crop sacrifices, animal sacrifices. Sensible things are offered in honor. And this is just a dictator reason. So this is what he's arguing here. Which all collapses <laughs> once you come to the age of reason, as mm-hmm. it were, which elevates uh, man to the highest being. Um, replacing the divine yes what would be implicit in all of this is um, that reason can deduce that God exists Um, now reason can be faulty and fail to recognise that God exists but actually because reason can realise there is a God it can therefore realise how we should behave towards him at least at some basic fundamental level but yes, the irony that the age of reason has lost <laughs> most of reason. Um, now, the fifth point there, and this is a big thing to grasp in terms of what we mean by natural law, I said his argument does not refer to Christ as the perfect exemplar of offerings. So you might make your argument as a good Christian and look to Jesus on the cross, offering a perfect sacrifice to the Father, and therefore we should also offer sacrifice to the Father. But that wouldn't be a natural law argument, that would be a scriptural argument, a Christian argument. So to do all your arguing and not appeal to the Bible, not appeal to Jesus, that's a natural law argument. Which is the very opposite of what your typical evangelical would do, where they would, Bible, Bible, Bible. yeah. So the Catholic understanding is saying actually you can get to the same conclusion we should offer sacrifice to the Father just by reason or by the Bible. And if you do it with the Bible you get a whole new gloss and significance on it, but actually it's in your nature already.
1: So we're compelled by our nature actually to worship
0: not compelled in that you can choose to pervert your nature you can choose to fail to fulfil your nature
1: you have an inclination man's yeah. natural well, inclination is well, to worship
0: is to worship, is to God yeah. is to fulfilment in God yeah. um,
1: so the thing about reason is it's a denial of your nature you make yourself
0: Well, let me note, as I've said here, read out what I've said next. Note also, the existence of a culture that did not offer worship to its god was probably unknown to St. Thomas. However, St. Thomas was aware that some cultures can be so corrupted that they can fail to see what is natural. For example, he refers to theft as something that the ancient Germanic tribes did not realise was wrong. In some, the reason is perverted by passion or by evil habit or by an evil disposition of nature. He would view such a culture, namely ours that doesn't know God, as perverse. Just because natural law can be known by all people doesn't mean it is known by all people. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to have fulfilment, you can only have fulfillment flowing out of your nature. You know, if you, if you don't want to look to what the, the end of your nature is to fulfill it, then you, you, you're going to pervert yourself. You're going to deny yourself what's built into you. So that if you demand that I will decide for myself what my nature is, um, well, yes, you can be free, but you can't be fulfilled and free.
1: But can you decide?
0: The, well, you are free. But
1: that is at the expense of fulfilment? Yeah. But, and and that's, not 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 nature. that's right, yeah. What would, what would you define fulfilment Um, the with
0: your <laughs> yes, which is uh, I'm trying to avoid it as tautology <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, yeah. and that's where in each different activity one of the big tasks of moral theology is to find out the end of the activity and yeah. with that the fulfilment and once I have in some activity shown that it then kind of follows mm-hmm. what the law is and I'm getting slightly ahead of my nose in saying that, so we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that. But if you remember, a few sessions ago, we looked at the fact that all human beings yearn to be happy, mm. and that Aristotle and St. Thomas see built into that the desire for God. The attitude. Um, yeah. yeah, the attitude. So that you can look to the inclinations, the movement of human behavior, see what movements fulfill and what don't and that shows you what your nature is okay so that's a valid argument the a argument b a false argument i've said Um, the argument that homosexual intercourse is natural and the argument that you'll hear goes something like this some animals can be observed to engage in anal sex some animals can be seen to occasionally have homosexual couples. And I've given three different, um, relatively recent newspaper articles. Um, my favourite being the uh, born-again flamingo. I don't think there could be anything gayer than a pink flamingo. Um, <laughs> um, and obviously the newspaper articles here are reporting these things, implying a certain conclusion from this. Um, implying the conclusion that, therefore, homosexual anal intercourse is deemed natural and deemed in accord with the natural law. However, as I've said here, natural law does not mean imitating the animals. that sex in humans has a significance beyond the significance it has in animals. And so it's not a valid natural law argument. We we're not animals, and what we mean by nature isn't animal. So natural law doesn't mean the law of the jungle. Natural law doesn't mean the laws of nature.
1: Our R- Anglican marriage introduction from the prayer book makes this brute beasts, the p- behaving like brute beasts of the field. Right. Well, I was not ordained to satisfy all carnal lusts like group pieces that have no fear. That's in the,
0: the purposes for which marriage is ordained. Right. Yeah. Another modern example would be, I forget what some uh, media person, last week, says he's not going to break his son up as a boy. He's going to let his son find yeah. out for himself who he's a boy. Or not. <laughs> who was it who did that? Was it last week? oh well, he's got a willy. Yeah, well, quite But I mean, yeah. I'm just saying this. And he lives in society, so he's going to get all sorts of messages <laughs> anyway, you're <doesn't it? laughs> And I'm afraid in my course with you we're not really going to have time to go into gender identity. No, no, but, uh, no. but, but the whole thing about nature is that I don't create it for myself. Um, I I discover what it is. And in terms of the body, my body reveals to me what I am. So a boy who feels like he's a girl but has the body of a boy, well actually his body is telling him something. And that the problem in that conflict isn't going to be remedied by destroying his body. Um, But then Cardinal Ratzinger made the point that I think will always be valid because I don't see how it could be changed. That even in these sex change operations, your chromosomes through all of the cells of your body remain what they are before the operation Mm -hmm. so you just end up with a mutilated body so the
1: substance remains the same but the outward appearance suggests something else yeah
0: but that only remains while you're pumping the body with fake hormones and whatever Mm -hmm. anyway that's a particular example but the the notion of this false argument Mm -hmm. so it's trying to I've given that to you to kind of clarify further what we mean by natural that we don't mean animal or imitating the animal. And lots of people when they mock Catholic natural law arguments will mock it thinking That's it's just animal. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Next page, page three. couple points here about why we call it natural. First point. The natural is natural because all people are naturally capable of knowing it. So birds are naturally able to fly, fish are naturally able to swim, and humans are naturally able to know the moral law. I know right from wrong. I've noted not all people achieve what they are capable of in their nature, just as a a mutant fish might fail to swim properly, even though it is a fish, but, Natural in the sense that you are naturally able to know it. Also said that all of the ethical laws of Christianity are capable of being known by non-Christians. So there isn't any moral law I hold as a Catholic that isn't capable of being known by a non-Catholic, by a non-Christian, by... Anyone who recognises that there is a God which reason can figure out can deduce the laws at the heart of all of Christian religion. We'll come on later. So you have some particular laws, like the law for, well, tomorrow, Ash Wednesday, various fasting laws. But those are actually, from the church, specifications of the natural law that I should... That fasting as a natural practice, natural law can manifest. But its specification on certain days and certain forms comes from the authority of the church. Okay, second point. The natural law is natural because it accords with our nature. And the importance of this is that it's not an external imposition but it accords with our nature and fulfills us. So it's not that the church is being so demanding and imposing the law on people. Actually, because the law is in your nature, giving it to people is giving them the path to fulfillment, even when it's not an easy road to fulfillment. But because it accords with my nature, it's not a random external imposition. Back to the notion of it being written on the heart, it is in you already. Noted another consequence there, an important consequence is that all humans are called to follow the same moral law because they all possess the same human nature. So that theft, murder, abortion are immoral for all humans in every country and every culture for all humans in every era of history. And we will have many cultures and many eras of history where those aren't recognised as being immoral, but that they, they remain immoral just because you're human. And the third reason we call it natural. The natural law is natural because we use a posteriori reasoning from the facts of nature to moral laws. So I go, in my reasoning, from nature to the law. Therefore, it's natural law. Um, I don't know how many of you would come across the is-ought dilemma, as it's sometimes referred to. So David Hume, um, Many centuries ago, said you can't deduce an ought from an is. Mm -hmm. You can't look at human nature and figure out how you ought to behave. Um, Which is actually what Catholics do all the time. Um, So it's what St. Thomas did in that example I gave you, reason being natural to man. Um, But you can do it defectively. You can have many false arguments. So, what have I said here? I've said. I've given two valid arguments is odd. First, building on St Thomas, man is naturally inferior to God, thus he is morally obliged to worship God. Second argument, man is naturally social, thus he is morally obliged to love. Now, you know, both of those are very brief arguments, but you can see how you move from nature to the law by reason but some invalid is-ought arguments. First, if man was meant to fly, he'd have been born with wings. Um, Secondly, the natural tendency of stupid people to harm themselves implies they should all be put out of their misery. Um, Now you get forms of that invalidly inferring something from what is seen in nature. Um, So there are many... Invalid arguments. Um, we may briefly touch on later. There is a Catholic theologian called Germain Griset who tries to construct, construct a completely different Catholic natural law system without starting in the is um, to avoid the accusation from David Hume of is or ought arguments. But generally speaking, This is what Catholics do in natural law reason. Okay, over the page, page four. Um, So, what I want to do here is to connect three things nature, our end, and law in how we think about things. So, said there, recall from lecture one, which I'm guessing you don't recall, but um, many, many weeks ago we said, what does it mean to call a human act good? A human act is judged good if it is in keeping with the end of that activity. The example I gave is a watch. You call it a good watch if it achieves the function of a watch. It tells the time. It's a bad watch if it doesn't tell the time. The nature of a thing can be deduced by observation, experience, etc. The end of the thing is known when we know its nature. And the law directs us to the proper use of a thing directs us to use a thing in keeping with its nature, directs us to use a thing in such a way that it, it achieves its end. Now, two examples to kind of clarify this. First example of eating. So, here we have eating an activity, a thing of nature, which we're going to look at, analyse, figure out what the end is, and what law applies to it. Now the end of eating, I've said, is nourishment. I've noted pleasure attaches as the completion of a healthy human act, but pleasure isn't the end in itself. So St Thomas notes, uh, building on Aristotle, that every completed good act has a corresponding pleasure that is proper to that act and completes the act. The example I give for the students is that the intellectual delight you get in completing an essay. Yes?
1: <laughs>
0: well, I use that example because it's a, non-physical pleasure. It's a non physical pleasure. It is a pleasure, but it's not physical. So we're talking about the pleasure that completes an activity. We don't just mean something at the level of the physical body. But there is the sense of the thing is done, the thing is complete and with that completion there is a type of pleasure that goes with that, a pleasure that is different for each different type of activity and is proper to what that activity is. Now I've noticed that gluttonous eating is not in keeping with a function of eating and thus it is evil. So gluttonous eating, I'm eating for the sake of pleasure, not for the sake of nourishment. And therefore that's contrary to the end of eating, which therefore contradicts the law which governs it. Now eating um, does have... um, If we think of eating as a human function, not just as an animal function, it also typically has a social dimension. So measuring the exact measure of nourishment has some variety in it. It, There's also the, the, the nourishment at this moment, as opposed to over this day or over this week, that the amount of food that's proper over a chunk of time, there's kind of a bit of Variability about how much I'm eating at this moment. Um, but that it is within that also part of the natural human functioning that eating is a social occasion. So that social gatherings of eating we find in all human cultures. And that this is a secondary end of eating, but that it is a real part of what eating is about. So I met up with a, a priest friend yesterday, we went out for lunch um, and we didn't have dessert, which for me is, is a tragedy, um, because my friend didn't want dessert. Now because I, eating is a social event, the measure of nourishment gets affected by who I'm eating with. Um, And sometimes that would include eating a bit more than I needed, but because I'm with a certain context. But even then, even then there would come a level at which it would become gluttonous regardless of how much the other people with me wanted to eat. So that the base measure is nourishment, and that that follows from the nature of what the activity is once I know what the end of the activity is. So I look at human nature, human experience. This shows me what is the nature of this thing eating. It's about nourishment. It's not about pleasure per se. It also has a social dimension. Um, If I contradict the end of eating by overeating, then I oppose the law written into my nature.
1: So if your friend appreciated the secondary nature of eating, you could look your pudding, couldn't you? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> um. You could have just
0: like coffee. Um, let's think in our culture, we have these two extremes of lots of super skinny people as well as lots of obese people in our culture. Um, you can be so obsessed with the appearance of your body that in a different way you're not measuring your eating properly Mm -hmm. and you're concerned about how you look not about what's healthy or what's social so eating contrary to the nature of eating isn't just about too much it might be too little but that again the measure of nourishment Tells you the right way to be eating. Can you also see here. What we mean by law. Isn't just a command. That's written out in a set of words. It's a command that leads you to the end. Is what a law is. So God doesn't just say. It's wrong to steal. He commands thou shalt not steal that that's what a law is a command to get you to the end a command to get you to the fulfillment of your nature um, so that when the church is talking about natural law it doesn't just mean a precise formulation the way canon law gets phrased
1: Talks about um, so the, the phrases like um, something is directed aright. It's sort of yeah, it is a law But it's putting you towards the end for which the law is orientating you, so that we, so we would ask that grace directs us aright according to what is revealed in this ten commandments, for example, mm-hmm. what says. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay, different example. We'll look at this example much more after lunch, but um, concerning sex. So the end of the human sexual act, in its nature, is procreation and union.
1: As its primary
0: purpose? Um, its purpose. So I put procreation and union. So. As I say, we'll we'll look at this in more detail after lunch, so I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But um, the key point here though, I'm saying, promiscuous sex is contrary to this end, procreation and union, yes? So if we look at that particular example, promiscuous sex is neither about lifelong union, nor is it about procreation. Therefore, it contradicts the end of what sex is about and therefore it's contrary to the moral law. Now, I've noted here, this presumes that man has a nature that he does not create for himself, with a set of ends and purposes that define him and define his activities. Now, obviously, that's not a presupposition that's in our culture today. Um, but I've said here, this presupposition can, in fact, be demonstrated by reason, by philosophy. And in our culture, we need to kind of help people to see that, because they don't start out seeing that, but I think you don't need to push someone too far to say, actually, you are a certain type of thing, you do have a nature, you don't just make up for yourself what it is. Last thing on that page, um, so it's kind of pretty obvious from where all this is going, a major task of natural law analysis thus consists of using reason to properly identify the end of an act. So what am I doing as an ethicist? I need to look at every activity, whether it's eating or sex, to properly look at what the activity is about, its purpose, its end, its goal, what fulfills it. That's the major task of moral theology. And once that's done, the law follows pretty obviously out from it. Okay, I think we need to have a little ten-minute break there. So that's...